If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The Dambuster Raid of May 1943 is one of the most celebrated episodes of the Second World War. But in military terms, was it in fact a flop? And was Barnes-Wallace, the man behind this audacious attack, really the maverick genius that's been presented in books and films? Richard Morris addresses these questions in his new book, Dambuster, and Spencer Mizzen spoke to him to find out more about Wallace's life and legacy. Thank you so much for joining us today. So, Barnes-Wallace, he's a subject of your latest book, and he's a, he's a, he's a very interesting character, isn't he? To some people, he's been viewed as a a kind of patriotic genius, somebody who embodies all that's best about Britain's pluck and ingenuity in the Second World War. Now, to others, the fact that we're, I guess, even talking about him at all is as a symbol of our seemingly undying and maybe not particularly helpful nostalgia for that conflict. When you embarked on on your book, which side of this argument did you stand? I think when I started, I remember having a conversation with his son, his eldest son, in about 2007. He was also called Barnes, and he looked and he looked rather like Barnes Wallace. And people would go up to him and say, "You look like Barnes Wallace," and he would say, "I am Barnes Wallace." <laughs> and, <laughs> but he he was a bit puzzled by all the celebrity and didn't really see him as one of the nation's greatest engineers of the 20th century, which is how the public saw him in a BBC poll. But at the time, I think I probably took the popular view that you just summarised, you know, the the kind of post-war view, which was that he was a a great figure, that he'd done a lot to assist the progress of the war in in the favour of the Allies, and that he was rather neglected after the war, particularly with projects like Swallow, this extraordinary variable geometry aircraft that never got built properly and that he'd been sort of put out to grass, really. But once the book got started, I found myself facing 
a lot of real conundrums on all those questions. For example, if you're a really great engineer, there should be some sort of legacy in the world of science, which should be global because science doesn't have national boundaries. And yet Wallace was a very British scientist and it's in Britain that he's celebrated. So there's the first red flag, which is that you're looking at a nationalist sentiment here rather than necessarily absolute scientific global significance. And secondly, there's the question of why, you know, why is it that next to Churchill and probably Alan Turing, he's the only civilian from the Second World War who really is remembered as for, I assume there are other people like you know, R.V. Jones, but once you get away from the military and, and the Victoria Crosses and the DSOs, you know, there aren't that many civilians who stand out. He is one of them. And one of the reasons he stands out, of course, is, is, is that through the book, and particularly the film, he was at, sort of at odds with the establishment, and that therefore he was, he, his war was on two fronts. You know, one was with the Germans, another one was with the government. So is that why the British love people who are sort of slightly eccentric and don't fit the normal models? Perhaps it was that. So I was having to be a historian on a lot of different fronts, if that makes any sense. It does, it does, yeah. So now it goes about saying that, Operation Chastise, the, the Dam Busters raid of May 1943 is, you know, the episode in Wallace's life for which he is most famous. Can you tell us a little bit about the genesis of that operation? I mean, exactly how audacious was Wallace's idea for this operation? Well, the genesis goes back to the late 1930s. There are actually two, I don't know what the plural of genesis is, but there are two of them. One is that the air staff, the air ministry itself, had uh, spotted the fact that dams were potentially significant targets as early as 1937. So they were in the system of targeting. And by 1940, he had decided that the optimum target for a bomb was not factories or centres of population. Because factories, he reasoned, you can hide them, you can split up the things that go on inside them and put them in different places, so they're always fugitive. What you need to do is to cause a massive power cut, because if a factory can't run, it can't make anything. So give up on final assembly targets and go back to sources of energy. Sources of energy take you to coal, oil and water. And dams, therefore, came onto his radar in about middle of 1940 as being potential targets. And he gradually became more and more obsessed with them. Now, if you have a long conventional bomb, which is cylindrical, yeah, you can't guarantee that it will all explode at one in the same instant. If you have a, a spherical form of a bomb, does that make it different? And he concluded that it did. And I think Wallace got the idea of a bomb that might be tending towards the sphere from that and then work backwards from that. So, well, what would happen if you dropped it? And, of course, it would bounce. And from that, he started doing experiments in April 1942 to um, see if you could produce a law of ricochet, of getting something to ricochet in a predictable way. And the advantage then of, of ricocheting the weapon were, and particularly you know, if you put backspin onto it, think of backspin in tennis, and what does it do? It makes the ball rise up when it hits the ground. You could um, arrive at the damn wall if you dropped it at the right distance. It would still be spinning. It would cling to the wall because of the spin and then go down the wall, crawl down the wall and explode at a predetermined depth. Basically, that's, you know, that's the order of events. I mean, so here's a, here's a really big question. I mean, of how much military value was chastised, in your opinion? I mean, can it be considered a success? 
We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. The raids planners were told by certain people that if you remove the Myrna water supply from the system, you could bring about not only massive physical damage, but also a, a, a crisis of power. This wasn't the case. And even if they had achieved that, it wouldn't have happened all in one go. It would have been spread out over a, a term of months. The fact they came very close to it, you can see in the speed with which the Germans rebuilt the dam, it was collecting water again by September. And that was because they were in a flat panic that if they lost the dam through the winter and the winter rains, that a real crisis might ensue. A crisis could have been brought about if they'd broken the other dam, the Zorpa, which was near the dirt, and which operates in conjunction with the, the Royal system. The Ada, which was the dam they did break, is in another watershed and was really unimportant for power supply points. They broke it, I think, because it could be broken. It was the right form of construction and it caused a lot of damage. But, but to really bring about a power crisis, they had to take out the Myrna and the Zorpa together. And they only did one of them. So that's the first thing. So the, the primary aim didn't happen. There were other aims. Physical damage was enormous. And the things like, which have never really been talked about, like pollution by metals and fuels and oils and chemicals in the ground, loss of livestock. Nobody to this day knows how many people died. Usual quoted estimate is 1,300 or thereabouts. There's another estimate which is higher, around about 1,600, made at the time. Most of the people who died were not German. They were forced labourers and prisoners. The whole thing was a, was a colossal tragedy. There, was, there were other effects, though, that weren't really bargained for at the time. One of them was the amount of labour and material that had to be transferred to rebuild the dams. 
Another one was the amount of material that had to be spread around other reservoirs in Germany to protect them against similar attacks. There were literally thousands of anti-aircraft guns and other weaponry and people, soldiery, who had to be transferred from other fronts to protect their water system. Incidentally, the same thing happened in Britain because the fear of reprisal meant that uh, it might happen here. So there was a big diversion of material and effort and weaponry to protect them, which obviously subtracted from the German war effort in other directions. I think there was a moral effect that nobody... There's a cultural historian called David Blackbourne, I think has come the closest to pointing this out, which was that Germany as a nation doesn't sort of coalesce until the later 19th century. And part of the coalescence is doing big things in managing nature, like straightening the River Rhine to make bigger ships go up and down it. The idea that you could harness nature to, to, to human will is very much part of sort of German identity. And by l- letting nature loose with such a small force of aircraft, only 19 of them, it was almost as if the RAF had found the keys to chaos and had thrown a sort of spotlight on the very idea of Germanness, if you like. So I think there was a cultural impact here that hasn't been much talked about. And it certainly put the frighteners on German war leadership because they reasoned that if, if only 19 aircraft could cause that much damage, what would happen if the RAF really put their minds to it? But of course, what did happen was that the, the RAF went back to doing what it had been doing before, which was bombing cities. What about the impacts back in Britain? I mean, was there a psychological impact? Did we get some kind of boost in morale as a, as a result of pulling something like this off? Yes, I think we did. And in several ways. The one was that the public were, had been become sort of inured to, to air raids. Last night, 50 of our aircraft attacked a target somewhere in Germany and we, when we bombed some factories. What happened with this raid was that it went on and on as a story. It, it's almost as if, like the flood itself, it found new channels to flow down. So if you follow it in both in the press and the mass observation process and the home intelligence reports... The public are talking about it long after the raid. So it had the most raids diminished in memory very quickly. This one increased in memory very quickly. Yeah. And when Wallace it then gets talked about in literature and film through in the post-war period, when the British are living, you know, with rationing and really sort of wartime material conditions, you know, it, there was a big afterglow, if you like, that went with it. It also helped, I think, Churchill was in the United States when it happened, and he spoke to Congress, I think, the next day or the day after, and he pointed to it as an example of what could be done pending the arrival of the Second Front and of Overlord. But it certainly had an effect on Soviet relations, too, that we were really doing, we were doing our bit, if you like, to keep Germany's um, back against the wall. So for all those reasons. After the war, of course, it becomes, after Paul Brickhill's book, it becomes... A legend is born, which is that it shortened the war and it was a fantastic success. And that legend goes into the film. And the important thing to remember here is that the book and the film, or the book, comes out 11 years before the official history of the strategic air offensive, which says, actually, it wasn't that important. So there's nobody to argue with it for 10 years. And that means that anyone who grew up, anyone who was alive and alert, you know, in the the 40s and 50s, to them, it was an absolute success. There's a, an air marshal, when the book came out, said, you know, it put Francis Drake in the shade. You know, and if there was one unit that really won the war, it was 617 Squadron. This is what everyone is, is told. And there's nobody to contradict that until the strategic history of the strategic air offensive is published in 1972, thereabouts. And the first person to really say that it was a waste of time isn't, doesn't 
published in that article till 1972. So they have a head start on what the legend says. Sure. Actually, let's talk about the film for a little bit. I mean, how important was this film, produced in 1955, starring Michael Redgrave as Barnes Wallace? I mean, how important was the film in building the legend of the Dan Buster's reign and of Barnes Wallace? I mean, and do you think it was helpful? Helpful to whom? Helpful to an accurate reading of history. Okay, yeah. Oh, golly. First of all, Wallace was quite well known before the war. He becomes a celebrity in 1936-37 for the Wellington form of construction, this sort of um, geodesic structure, which achieves the world distance record for flying in 1938. Is it when the, the, the Wellers, I might be wrong about the date, the Wellers fly to Australia non-stop. So he's very much in the limelight then. During the war itself, he's kept under sort of lock and key, really, by the security people to, to sort of keep him out of the picture. But when the Tirpitz is sunk in 1944, November, he is revealed as the man who produced the bomb, the deep penetration bomb that did the job. And he's also revealed at that point as the man who had designed the bomb that had destroyed the dams. And so by the end of the war, he's well known for anyone who reads newspapers as the, as the name behind it. But I think it's Paul Brickhill's book that really is the game changer. And that book, Brickhill was very assiduous in promoting his work. So it didn't just get published in 1951 as a book. It was published in a short form in newspapers, newspaper serialisations, condensed books, all of that kind of... And they, so everyone around the country knew about it. Everyone read it. And it's, been, it's continuously been in print ever since. And the film rights were snapped up pretty, pretty smartly by Associated British, and they worked on it through the next two or three years. So it's really a kind of a, a sort of cultural industry, you know, the, the, dams, the story of the dams. Redgrave's portrayal of Wallace is partly true in the sense that he selected aspects of, of Wallace. Wallace is the fact that he could be quite sort of self-effacing, quite sort of dogged, quiet, abstracted. He left out a whole range of other aspects of being really quite angry in meetings if they weren't going his way, of being kind of linear. He, he never... He was not good at seeing other people's points of view in relation to what he was talking about. Of being over-optimistic, of, of mood swings, whereby in a letter written one Sunday in late 1914, you could end the war with 30 bombers and his deep penetration weapons. That would finish the war, end of story. And he could be cantankerous, Ill, ill-mannered. He didn't take kindly to people who argued with him. He sometimes didn't, couldn't differentiate between objective argument and hostility. You describe him as a 20th century Victorian. What do you mean by that? Well, there's a whole literature on 20th century Victorians. They're, they're very interesting people because scientifically they can be very 20th century or, in Wallace's case, 21st century. But uh, politically, socially, morally, in terms of uh, outlook, they are still back in the, in the 19th century. So Wallace, I think, was, he believed in the empire. And the next best thing was the Commonwealth, so he believed in that. But he, I think he's, he grew up in the age... He, he actually attended Victoria's Diamond Jubilee in 1899, was it? And there was a whole section in the book about that, about, about his going to it, because his mother described it vividly. You know, all these battalions and regiments from all over the world marching through the middle of London. So he had the Victorian faith in philanthropy, in, in God, a God-fearingness, and the Church of England was, was sort of ordained by God, therefore it was the only church you could belong to. I think by instinct he wants to be a Catholic. 
but he had to be in the Church of England because that's what you had to be if you were going to be a proper English gentleman. He believed in, in science and engineering as ways of, to solve problems. He believed in originality, but also in tradition. He, again, he didn't see a contradiction between um, extreme traditionalism on the one hand and extreme yeah. pioneeringism on the other. He saw them rather more as opposite sides of one coin. And what did he make of the, the lionisation of him in the sort of two decades after the Second World War? I mean, did he enjoy that or did it make him a bit uneasy? I think he did enjoy the lionisation to the extent that in the, his archive, which was phenomenal, that's why the book took so long to write, he kept all the cuttings, all the, all the brochures, all, all the interviews. Yeah. And although he said he avoided publicity and didn't like interviews, if you look at BBC's output through the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, he was on it almost every year, talking to somebody about something. So he helped to craft his own legend, yeah. Did he have any even more audacious and innovative schemes that didn't make it into actual production? Yes, he did. Before I do that, can I just take you back to a footnote at the very end of the book? It's a quote from Machiavelli, you know, the 15th century sort of political theorist, who said that there is nothing more dangerous than being original because everyone has a stake, everyone who lets out contracts or runs governments has a stake in the status quo. And the last thing you want to do is to overthrow the status quo in favour of something entirely new that might not work. So if you produce an entirely new type of aircraft or drug or car, you know, you are getting under the feet of people who are building cars or aircraft or drugs at this moment and challenging their ability to do what they think they know best of. And of course, uh, if you're going to do that, a politician, the first thing they're going to ask is, will it work? Well, of course, the whole idea of something that's completely new is it might not. Therefore, you're taking a gamble. Therefore, politicians and officialdom bureaucracies generally like to improve on what they've got now, the existing solution, update the existing solution, make it work a bit better, optimise the existing solution, rather than something that's completely revolutionary. Most of Wallace's ideas after the war were revolutionary and therefore almost guaranteed to, to, to have people being cautious about them. They included, in no special order, a space vehicle that could take off from the ground in the length of a couple of football pitches, fly to 160,000 feet where the air is thin and friction levels are low, fly to Australia and come down again in a couple of hours. So an intermediate space vehicle, the swing wing aircraft Swallow and uh, its predecessor, Wild Goose, which for me are, are certainly the most attractive, charismatic things that he ever designed, particularly because uh, not everyone has sort of hoisted this in, is that whereas variable geometry aircraft do get built later on, um, like the Tornado, Wallace's variable geometry aircraft, the, the wings swing independently. So one wing could be going one way and another one could go in the other. And like a bird. And because of that, you save on the tail in Pennage. You can take most of it away. And you can use that space and weight so saved, either for fuel, for distance or payload, or for speed. And his models, which were radio control, are pretty much size of a, a pit special aircraft. It's actually smaller than Wild Goose. I mean, it's, it's got a smaller wingspan. So these were, these were small, air, real aircraft, but flown from the ground through radio control. It took years to, get to, to perfect the systems for doing that because he had to build all the equipment to do these tests as well as the aircraft. He had to do the, the telemetry, the, the control systems, the fuel systems, the cold motor rockets that drove. All, all this had to be built from scratch. So it took years. As usual, he thought he could do it in a couple of years and, and do it quickly. But it, what he began in 1945 was still going on in 1958, 59, when the government pulled the plug on it. So 
Yes, I mean, in his last years, he had entirely new t- shapes of aircraft, a square fuselage aircraft with not one wing, but lots of little winglets, extraordinary shapes, which have not yet been tested at full scale, will take us far into the century we're living in now. And do you think that Barnes & Wallace's reputation will forever be sort of intricately bound up with the Second World War? Do you think it would be forever governed by the strength of our nostalgia for the conflict? Well, on the first part of your question, I hope not. And let me put it like that. I think he's a much more interesting person and more significant person. As a critical figure within the technological, political, cultural milieu of Britain and Europe from the 1920s through to the 1980s, I think, I think he's much more interesting if you look at him in that way, into the conversations about, about what technology should be, what, where it should go and how, why we should do it, or indeed how we should do it. I mean, although he was, a, he was very, very conservative in many ways, I mean, he, he believed in sort of government intervention on a large scale, for example. And in fact, it was the lack of it that annoyed him quite often. Yeah. Um, so one wonders, you know, where, where he would be if he was alive today. Britain's romance with the 1940s is another thing altogether. And we've painted ourselves into a corner of being fixated by the war and things that went on within it. And I think we've done that, well, I think in the 50s, things like the film celebrated, because the, the first half of the 50s was still pretty, pretty dreary. I've still got my sweet ration card. And I think it was 1954, you know, that... It, the war, economically, in the way, many ways, was still going on. We were on our knees financially, problems with pound and all the rest of it. So we kind of basked in the afterglow of having sort of got, got through the war, I think, after it. And I think and many people are still doing that. So it becomes a kind of treat from other problems. And I think we should stop it. That was Richard Morris. Dambuster, an engineer's life, is published by Weidenfeld in Nicholson. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 